Nations, the picture of freedom that we have in Christ, and we're calling it freedom in the in-between. As I said last week, over the next four weeks, um, I was planning on being gone next week, and I'll be here, but uh, we'll have uh, four different men from our church going to be giving the next four weeks messages, walking us through carefully and faithfully through the book of Galatians. And today we have Brother David Thomas, affectionately known in our youth group and others as Dr. Dave. His, as I say, is a beautiful mind. I could listen to Brother Dave uh, talk all day. Now, I don't understand all of what he says, but I could still listen to him um, talk, and I am so thankful. I've already heard the message that God has laid upon his heart from Galatians 2, and I cannot wait for you to hear that as well. So, Brother Dave, if you can go ahead and come up and share with us what God has laid upon your heart, and let's make him feel welcome this morning. Thank you. Yes, sir. Good morning, church. Oh, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Pastor Michael, for the opportunity. Uh, I pray pray to uh, the Lord in between services that he would uh, plug me back in, recharge my batteries, because I left it up here this morning for the first service. I thought we might have to call uh, uh, some of the uh, first folks in the first congregation, uh, call rescue for them, but uh, we gave them the uh, CPR, you know, Divine Holy Spirit CPR, and they were all uh, pretty energized, so I hope I can continue. But if I pass out up here, it's all on Micah from that point forward, So, and he'll do a good job. Now, um, i got to say, I, I didn't want to sound patronizing, uh, but I'll say it again because you guys need to hear it just like the first service heard it. I, we should all thank the Lord, our God, for the pastor that he has placed in this congregation. Amen? If, yeah, give it up. As I was preparing this message this week, you know, this is not an easy thing to do. It is not. And, and, and Pastor Micah is so faithful in his study and his preparation to bring the message to us every week. The quality of his messages are, are astonishing. They're astounding. You know, I love them. They're, they're edifying to the mind and the heart and the spirit. And I thank you for it, brother. Um, this is, again, this is not an easy thing to do. This message is not going to be like Pastor Micah's, because I am not Pastor Micah. Um, now, I followed uh, the things that I'm supposed to do, that you're supposed to do when you're preparing to speak from the, from the Word. I prepared at the outset by praying. I studied hard. I read multiple commentaries, wrote, prayed some more, rewrote, prayed still again, started over, and finally gave it up to the Lord, Amen. like as what I should have done at the very outset. Now, given how hard the enemy has worked on me this week, and he has worked hard on me this week, because the more I prayed, the more I studied, the more he increased the attacks on me. So that told me that there's something in this message that we need to hear. There's certainly things that I needed to hear. The Lord spoke to me about. There was points this past week that I was on my knees, not in prayer. Well, actually, I was because, please, God, this back is killing me. Old injuries. You guys are in the military. You young guys, God bless you. Take care of yourself because every one of those injuries that you have in service to our country come back to haunt you when you get to be an old man. And, buddy, I had to have Miss Karen help me up off the floor a couple of times. It was so bad. So, the enemy came hard against me in preparing this message, so there's something in here for us to hear. So here it goes. 
Now, this is our second installment in the Freedom In Between series, and it's an exploration of Galatians. This is a great, amazing book. Now, the letter uh, to the Galatian churches is different from Paul's other letters. One difference is in the form. His salutation is brief. He basically says, hey, I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm writing to you. Now, listen. Okay? He dispenses with the normal formalities common to letters of the time, and he gets down to business in a hurry. Paul had something to say to these churches, and he doesn't mess around, okay? Now, many scholars believe that Galatians was written in the late 40s, early 50s. Some say as late as uh, AD 58. An approximate uh, date, an earlier date of AD 49 is probably most likely. In fact, that's the date that I go with. It seems Paul wrote this letter before the Jerusalem Council, mentioned in Acts 15. Because although he mentions several trips to Jerusalem, he makes no mention of this very important council. And because the Jerusalem council dealt with the exact issues, Paul writes about it in Galatians, it would seem very strange that Paul didn't mention the council. So I think AD 49 is probably the date that he wrote it, no later than AD 49. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you're a history buff like me, that's that's an interesting piece of information, but it's more important than that because this is probably the earliest letter that Paul wrote. If it's not, then it's probably the second oldest. And within it, though, you see what, they, what theologians call high crystal, Christology, a high view of who Jesus Christ was. So if you hear the lie in society that basically Christianity, Jesus wasn't didn't claim to be God, didn't claim to be the Son of God, and all the rest that is basically a fabrication of the church, don't believe it, because very early in A.D. 49, first letters of Paul, this is just 14 years after Paul was converted, probably 16 or 17 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, you have the church preaching the message, the gospel message that we have today. Okay, that's important. Galatians also is a pretty important letter because you see the formations of the ideas that Paul come, brings to fruition and completion in the book of uh, Romans. So it's a really important letter. But the thing that I want you to not miss is how passionate this letter is. Okay, If nothing else, you've got to understand that Paul is bringing passion and preaching and passion to the to the church in Galatians, okay? Uh, N.T. Wright, who's probably the most um, foremost Pauline scholar today and a theologian, brilliant theologian, says that if we examine, if we examine um, what is going on, the situation that existed in these churches and the context of the times as Pauline authority uh, that, he's, that, that he is, he says that all sorts of things are revealed, things we often missed in Galatians, and I want to bring some of that to you today. Okay, now picking up, Paul is picking up his argument that he begun in chapter 1. Now follow along with me and hear Paul's words to the churches of Galatia. <clears throat> Paul writes, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed to the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they, they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel, I'm sorry, and even, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing their circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas, dear Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, that's like being Gentiles, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you, thank you. Let it be. Touch our hearts. Touch our minds. Bring forth, Lord, what you want these people to hear today, Lord. Amen. Can you not feel the passion? Indeed, the heat that is in Paul's words. He's not pulling any punches. While his letter is full of brilliant argumentation, in Galatians, Paul begins, as I said, begins to lay the groundwork for the things that you'll see in Romans, you'd be missing that key aspect if you missed this. While Paul dearly loves these people, he is writing to them in righteous anger. He's taking them to the woodshed. 
As New Testament scholar Leon Morris notes, Galatians is a passionate letter, the outpouring of the soul of a preacher on fire for his Lord and deeply committed to bringing his hearers to an understanding of what saving faith is. Passionate? On fire? Yes. Paul is white hot in addressing serious challenges to his authority as an apostle. And more importantly, though, he is defending the centrality of the Lord's gospel message of grace that Paul himself brought to the churches in Galatia. Now, Pastor Micah told us last week, our justification, our salvation before God is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? Amen. It is not Jesus plus anything, but Jesus alone. Now, that is incredibly liberating. Could stop the message right now. Really could. That is incredibly liberating. But it is also contrary to our sinful egos. We can't believe it's that simple. It is. But it is also hard. And that becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ initiates a radical transformation in the life of the believer. We are told we must die to ourselves and affect letting go of the self-centeredness, self-actualization, and self-reliance we are told by the world is the essence of freedom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is completely anti-egotistical and counter-cultural. It is indeed radical. We often ask, you mean I can't do anything to please God? And the answer to that question is the secret to the Christian life, to Christian formation. Although we can't earn God's favor, we could never earn our salvation. Scripture does speak about our pleasing God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says that his aim is to be pleasing to him. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, he says to believers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, do so more and more. But if God's pleasure in me is not based on my performance for him, then how can I please him? I'm confused. In the second chapter of Galatians, there are three different pictures of faith and practice that help us answer this question. Let's look at them. First, in the first ten verses of this chapter, we see right behavior with wrong belief. There was a discussion between Paul and some false brothers over whether or not Titus, a Gentile believer, needed to be circumcised. These false brothers, who we are told had come up from Jerusalem, probably from the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, were saying, in effect, that in order to be saved, you needed to follow the law, Mosaic law. In other words, before you could truly be a Christian, you had first to become a Jew. Now, Paul was having none of this. Paul recognized just how poisonous and against the gospel of grace this was. On this trip to Jerusalem, apparently to bring financial aid to the church there, so that's why I know it's a Baptist church, Paul forces this issue with a pillar, the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, James, Peter, and John. Paul, with forceful argument and the witness of the faithful Gentile believer, Titus at his side, affirmed Paul's authority as an apostle, but validated the truth of the gospel he brought to the church at Antioch and beyond. The net effect was to turn aside the effort to compel Titus 
and all other male Gentile believers at Antioch and other churches to submit to the Mosaic law of being circumcised. And all those guys went, amen, thank you. That's a good thing. Now, the Judaizers, though, before we're too hard on them, the Judaizers, Judaizers see, believe they were advocating good things. The compliance with the laws, practices, and precepts of the Mosaic law. This was, after all, God's word. Okay? They were advocating what they saw as right behavior, but their belief was flawed. Indeed, their belief was fundamentally wrong. As Paul readily saw, these works of the law were not only unnecessary, for Christ has fulfilled the law of Moses, they were antithetical to the gospel. What these false brothers were advocating would add nothing to their Christian formation. It would not help them become stronger Christians, but would in fact inhibit their trust, their faith in Christ Jesus and what he has done on the cross. It would take their eyes away from what Christ did on that cruel Roman cross, and that was to deliver us from our sins and to pay the debt we could never pay. If you were focusing on the law, you would not be focusing on that. Believers of all stripes, whether Jew or Gentile, are not redeemed by the compliance with the Mosaic law because Christ fulfilled the law and all righteousness, all justification rests in him. Not in the Christian's attempt, impossible and fruitless as it would be, to comply with the law. Now, I know every one of you in here is like me. You try. You try really hard. And you fail to live in accordance with the law. Before I get out of bed, I have to start repenting of sin. And by the time the evening comes for my evening prayers, I've got a really long list to repent of and to bring before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. And he says, Dave, I got it. I've taken that all away. Tomorrow's another day. You'll get up and you will do it again. But compliance with the law is not the issue. Walking in faith is the issue. Trusting in Jesus is the issue. Okay? Paul is telling the Galatians to ignore all those who want to burden them with a list of do's and don'ts of the trappings of religion. And these verses, Paul is affirming his apostolic authority. He's going, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, James, John, all the rest, they're apostles. So am I. My teaching is valid. I got it from Christ Jesus. He made me an apostle on the road to Damascus where he struck me blind. Paul will not relent on his authority as, a gospel, as, a, as an apostle. He's also affirming the truthfulness of his teachings of that gospel and that the pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John, agree that the requirements of the law of Moses no longer apply to the Gentiles. And, as Paul argues, they don't apply to Jewish followers of Jesus either. Okay? Now, any halfway decent sermon should have a little application to us today. So I try. The problem in the church today has little to do with obedience to the Mosaic law. Thankfully, we've had those discussions. We can wear clothes that are, have multiple fabrics in them. We can eat shrimp. Praise God, we can eat bacon. Amen? Amen? We can do all that. Thankfully, we're done with that. We're all good. Yet there are a host of things we might do that fall into this right behavior 
with wrong belief category. Here's some of them that occurred to me. Having a quiet time. Studying the Bible. Avoiding sinful behaviors. Coming to worship. Being part of the worship band or choir. Being active in the sewing circle or food bank. Going on mission trips. And don't mistake that me here. All these things are good. They're very good. But if we do them thinking we are earning God's favor by doing them, then we are becoming legalistic. If you think you have to do these things to repay Jesus for what he has done for you, stop. You cannot repay him for what he did for you on that cross. It's impossible. Rather, do them out of the sheer joy of serving, not obligation, and certainly not in an effort to earn the Lord's favor. Obedience to the word of God is an act of love. It should be. Jesus says that himself. If you love me, obey me. He doesn't say obey me to love me. Serving should be an act of love. It is a reflection of Christ's love that he showed and is still showing to us. All of us have this tendency. We are all recovering legalists. Guard your heart against this tendency. There's a second thing that Galatians shows us. The picture in verses 11 through 14 is the reverse of the, the previous picture. Instead of right behavior with wrong belief, Paul illuminates Peter's right belief but wrong behavior. This is, in a word, the definition of hypocrisy. Here Paul is calling the Galatians' attention to the fact that he once had to confront Peter for behavior that served to cause a schism in the church at Antioch. Behavior that if it had persisted would have fractured congregations everywhere throughout the early church. When Peter visited the church at Antioch, which was largely composed of Gentile believers, he began eating and spending time in close fellowship with them. That's what he should have done. That's good. And Peter had been doing this for a while, ever since his encounter with the Roman centurion Cornelius that we read about in Acts 10. It is so very important to remember that table fellowship was much more than just inviting someone over for a meal. It was considered a sign of acceptance, of approval, of joining together in common accord. Yet verse 12 tells us that Peter had stopped eating with the Gentile believers in the church and had begun to separate himself for fear of the circumcision party, the Judaizers. Other Jewish believers began following Peter's lead, including dear Barnabas, the nicest guy in first century church. I mean, this guy was everybody's best friend. Barnabas helped start the church in Antioch, yet he's drawing away from the Gentile believers because Peter had drawn away from the Gentile believers. Those of us that have been called to do things in leadership positions in the church, be very careful with your behaviors because if you don't walk properly, the negative effect that you will have on congregants in the church is devastating. And we see that in the body of Christ and other churches where leaders and pastors have acted badly and have caused great dissension in the church. That's a, that's a foot stomp. Okay, so Peter stopped uh, eating with them. 
Barnabas has stopped eating with them, and all the other Jewish converts stop eating with the Gentile believers. Now, this was deeply hurtful and corrosive. It conveyed to the Gentiles that they were not fully acceptable before God. Paul writes in verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter knew the gospel and believed the gospel, but his actions didn't reflect the gospel. Paul did not hesitate to call Peter out because he recognized just how contrary to the gospel Peter's behavior was and how dangerous it was to the unity of the church. J.D. Greer says it must have been like a WWE match between Paul and Peter. Most of us, in fact, probably all of us, tend to think solely of our individual relationship with Christ our Lord. That's a good thing. Our Christian formation, our transformation into reflecting the person of Christ in our lives rests upon having Christ in us, of having the closest of all human relationships, having the Holy Spirit reside in us and allowing him to change us. It's a pretty non-controversial idea in American evangelical churches, though it is truly radical and is largely antithetical to the self-centered, self-aggrandizing culture we live in. Yet there is much more, there's much in our wealthy, self-indulgent lifestyles that is not in line with the truth of the gospel. If you don't realize it, folks, you're in the 1% of the richest people on this planet, okay? Folks that live on assistance in the United States have a higher quality of life than half the people in Europe. You're rich whether you realize it or not. Okay, And in our wealthy, self-indulgent lifestyles, we find a lot of hypocrisy. If someone claims to follow the Savior who came to preach good news to the poor and powerless, yet he or she ignores the poor and powerless, that's out of line with the gospel. It's hypocrisy. In the same way, if someone is following Christ but living in sexual immorality, that too is hypocrisy. If you're engaging in gossip, you may very well be bearing false witness against another. Hypocrisy. If you embrace the vilification of others as part of your politics, but as that is not walking the paths of righteousness. This too is hypocrisy. These actions, among so many others, grieve the Holy Spirit and affect not only our Christian formation as individuals, our sanctification, it also threatens the unity of the church. You see in these verses Paul's deep concern for church unity. He came against, in a powerful way, the two-tiered Christianity that was threatening to emerge in the first century church. We too must guard against a divisive mindset. We see it in the Southern Baptist Convention. We see it between the Southern Baptist Convention and other denominations. We see it within our own congregations. It must stop. There are no second-class Christians in God's kingdom. We must embrace all believers in the essential equality that we enjoy together in Christ. 
We must reject a kind of two-tiered Christianity with a division such as those who go on mission trips and those who don't. Or those who give a certain amount of money and those who don't. Those who are active in community outreach and service and those who are not. We're all together in this. Now, this doesn't mean we don't encourage one another to follow Christ and carry out the commission he gave to us. But we are not in a competition to see who can earn the most favor before God. That's not how this works. Rather, we are to lock arms with one another and avoid legalism and hypocrisy and continuously point each other to the gospel. Our Christian formation is not solely an individual thing. The church is the body of Christ. It is within the church that we join with one another to do the Lord's work, which is to both carry the gospel message into all the world, but it's also to care, comfort, and sustain one another. The church universal is our true family. This is family. We are family with our brothers and sisters that are suffering in Haiti or in India, or in China. We need to remember them in our prayers every day. Now, we come to the third picture that helps us understand what it means to please God. In verses 15 to 21, Paul describes right belief with right behavior. Touchdown! This is where we want to be. This is how we want to live. And how is that? Paul tells us. Through faith. Not faith plus anything, simply faith. And these verses, Paul shows us two massively important results of living by faith alone. First, through faith in Christ, we are accepted before God. In verses 15 and 16, Paul reminds Peter that they, as Jews, did not find salvation through the law of Moses, but through faith in Christ. Paul pointedly says, if righteousness comes through the law, that Christ's death was for nothing. Christ did not need to have suffered and died on the cross. Paul says that to go back and to live as if the law saves you after you've been saved through faith in Christ is to rebuild the system that he had torn down. It would be like the Israelites returning to bondage in Egypt. Paul reminds Peter that God has accepted the Gentiles even though they aren't circumcised, and they don't eat what the Old Covenant says to eat. And if God has accepted them, so should Peter and Paul and all other Jewish believers. Through faith in Christ, Jews and Gentiles are accepted before God. They, we, are all one in Christ. There is no distinction. We are all equal before God the Father. Because we are in Christ, we are all justified by Christ and Christ alone. So regardless of race, creed, color, nationality, gender, social status, or the politics of other Christians, they are our brothers and sisters and we should love them as such. There must be no divisions in the body of Christ. We stand free, justified before God through our faith alone and by God's grace alone. Nothing in us warrants, merits, initiates, or causes God to save us. Now there are theological systems that go to great lengths considering what all this means and how this has worked out. You can sit and talk about these theological systems at nauseum and never get anywhere. 
really, truly. There's Calvinism. There's Arminianism. There's Molinism. I'm none of those things. I'm not even really a Baptist. As Pastor Micah says, I'm a Biblicist. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, period, dot, that's it. Okay? All the rest of it is like talking about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. It's entertaining. It can be, cause the mind to cramp up. But it's ultimately, it's a secondary issue. What is important is how you stand, what your relationship is with Jesus Christ, period. Amen? Justification is all about grace. It's free to us from God the Father because God the Son paid the debt we could not pay. Paul puts it this way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through God's grace we have glorious freedom. We have been delivered from the bondage of sin over our lives because Christ took our sins upon himself and imputed his righteousness to us. Second, through faith in Christ, we are alive to God. And a lot of us miss this. A lot of us miss this. In verses 18 and 19, Paul warns against trusting in Christ and then returning to live like your acceptance before God is in any way based on following the law. In verse 19, Paul tells us why he died to the law, so that I might live to God. Not only be justified by faith, but we live by faith. One commentator writes, quote, Paul had no room for salvation that consists of, a, of praying a prayer, supposedly trusting in Jesus, and then living your life the same after that, end of quote. I believe that is true. If you have largely entered into a, truly entered into a saving relationship with God and Jesus Christ, living as you once did is impossible. There should be a discernible difference in how you are living your life, especially in how you relate to others. You see, faith isn't just for receiving salvation. It's also for enabling us to live out our salvation. As Paul says in verse 20, quote, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says in Romans 6.3 that we've been baptized into Christ's death, meaning that we have died with him. What does that mean? It means we die to sin. It's penalty, power, and dominion. It's done. It has no longer effect of us. All of our sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for on the cross. We not only die to sin when we trust in Christ, but we die to ourselves. In verse 20, Paul says, I no longer live. You die to your old self that was dominated by sin. When Paul says he was crucified with Christ, it is as another commentator said. Paul is saying, it's not me anymore. It's not the I that tried to work for God and failed every time. Nor the I that thought the world revolved around him. The pride of the old I directed everything to focus on self-esteem, self-confidence, 
self-direction, and self-exaltation. And it lived for personal pleasure and position. But my life is no longer about me. This, brothers and sisters, is the key to the Christian life. Faith in Christ is not just in Christ who died on the cross for you, but the Christ who lives in you. We live by faith when we believe Christ every moment of every day. We believe him to be our sustenance and our strength. We believe him to be our love and joy and peace. We believe him to be our satisfaction. We believe Christ to be our deliverer from the power of sin. And in him is our purity and our holiness. This is Christianity. Believing Christ to be everything you need for every moment you live. And such belief and such trust and such faith is where you are truly free. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, ponder your word, pray over your word, and bring this message to my beloved church. Lord, be with us as we go about this week. Help us to focus and allow you to work in our lives and hold to the faith that you are everything. Let us die to ourselves and live for you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Would you guys stand as we worship together?